this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, still at the Conservative Party Conference in Manchester, although there's a rumour going around this might be the last day. Uh, coming up then on today's episode of the podcast, we'll bring you some snap reaction to Boris Johnson's big speech. Light on policy, it has to be said, but will the party faith all go away with a spring in their step? We'll find out. We're also going to take a look at the Cabinet, who is up and who is down after these uh, this week in Manchester. Henry Zeffman, Chris Curtis and Isabel Hartman cast a critical eye over the Prime Minister's top team. But first, we kick off with our columnist panel today, joined by Times columnist and spectator political editor James Forsyth and Nadine Batchelor-Hunt from Yahoo. Could you two just talk amongst yourselves for a minute about what... Uh, well, Matt gets his breath back. <laughs> James, what have you made of this conference? Ben Wallace uh, was telling me earlier, he thought it would all gone very well, and it was lovely for everyone to get together, and the fact that they've announced some money for some tennis courts and new crackdowns, people glue themselves to motorways. We can gloss over that. It's nice for everyone to get together. Is that your take? So I think that you might have expected a bit more grumpiness, you know, given that this is a Tory government that's just decided to raise taxes. That's not a universally popular decision in, in the Tory party. But I think that was counteracted by people's just sheer delight in being together again. Now, people might all come to uh, regret this in a, in a week's time, but it has been remarkable how little COVID has featured at this yeah. conference, both in terms of people aren't talking about it, but also, you know, you, I, I think I you are not seeing lots of people wandering around in masks, I think it is fair to yeah. say. Although that, that um, was also true of Labour last no, week, despite the fact that they all make a big fuss of wearing them in the House of Commons. They were not wearing them in Brighton. You're going to see a packed hall for this Boris Johnson speech. People won't be in masks there. There's not been much um, social distancing going on. And, and I think so. I think that kind of sense of normality has cheered people up. Uh, and then I think also the fact that this is the first Tory party gathering since they won, they got Brexit done in inverted commas, won that majority and I think there's a and I think that that has created a kind of a good mood I mean there's a I think it's remarkable that you sometimes talk to people and they're like oh I had to get a six petrol stations before I could get enough fuel to drive up here but none of that no, no one here seems to be blaming the government for that the thing is it, it feels like I mean party conferences are always a bit weird and they feel like a sort of parallel universe but you wouldn't know that this was a country where people couldn't buy petrol they're worried about you know food uh you know universal credit being cut from today um and yet people are, uh, this just feels like the delayed party of the, uh, of the election win in 2019. Yeah, so um, this is my first conference, which has been an experience. Uh, I went to an LGBT event last night and this trust was there, like dancing with people. Um, but it does kind of feel like we are in an, a, a little kind of bubble here. Um, I think from the alcohol to the food, um, it's very removed from what's happening out there. You know, there are like champagne receptions and stuff. And meanwhile, today, um, universal credit's being cut. So there is that sense of um, a divide. I've spoken to quite a few Tory members. Um, I've asked a few of them about what they think about the universal credit cut. A lot of them don't like it. A lot of them don't think it's the right thing to do. I think a lot of them expressed they were concerned about how we're going to pay for it. But I think they were like, I don't, I don't think it's the right thing to do right now. Um, so it's been very interesting. I think, I think maybe there's a bit of a divide from what members are thinking versus what uh, MPs are thinking. Maybe because, you know, the conference hasn't happened in person for coming up. You know, yeah. this is the first time in two years, and perhaps MPs have been a bit insular. I think at an event um, yesterday, I can't remember who it was, but apparently one of the members said to. Uh, was it? it was the culture secretary, a former culture secretary. Um, you know, I don't like these culture wars. I, I don't. I yeah, don't Oliver like Dowden. Oliver Dowden. Now, Dowden, the, now yeah. the Tory party chairman. Yeah, and I went to an event uh, yesterday on culture wars, and a Tory MP there who works in the Department of Culture, Media and Sport said the government has a responsibility to dial down on these culture wars. Um, and also Ben Wallace, uh, not Ben Wallace, sorry, Christian Wakeford. I went to an event with him a few days ago, and I asked him, you know, do you think the government's levelling up? Do you think it's fair? And he lambasted the government and said we're letting down children. The, the communication between local government and central government is crap. Yeah. Um, and he said, uh, you know, um, I'd be happy to work with Marcus Rashford um, or Andy Burnham to, to help hungry kids because it's never the child's fault if they're in poverty. So I think it's quite interesting if you go into these fringe events or you talk to members, there is a bit of discontent there, I think. I mean, it's, it's sort of all, slightly always true of party comments that the more interesting stuff's happening on the fringe, James. But there's bit, given the total lack of interesting things going on in the fun little auditorium where they've been making speeches, that's been true even more so this time around, do you think? 
Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the conference hall, the main conference uh, hall, is always more stage managed at Tory conference than for Labour conference or Lib Dem conference. There aren't any pesky votes or anything like that to get in the way. I also think that because you've got a spending review coming up, this has been a very policy light conference. You've not seen kind of big announcements of, you know, uh, kind of sensationally large amounts of money or anything like that. So I, I think that is. That is true. But I also think that the kind of interesting thing about the party kind of working out where it wants to go, what it wants to do next. And I think there's a and I think this is the kind of interesting question, which is, you know, what is the purpose of his government? Number ten are very keen to say that the purpose and Boris Johnson will will uh, in one of his favourite phrases double down on this in his speech that the purpose of his government is levelling up. I, I mean the big question is how do you achieve that? And I think you've I think you've begun to see a little bit more flesh being put on the bones of the idea this week. But it's still a long way to go and lots of the things they are talking about doing are very difficult. You know, but one of the things that Boris Johnson will say in his, his speech later is, you know, we are tackling the problems that that, no, that other governments in the last 20 years haven't had the guts no to do. No government has had the guts to tackle before, which is a very interesting attack on the his two Conservative predecessors. Indeed. Also, um, um, one of the things I point out as well, they keep talking about levelling up. I went into Manchester Central yesterday to talk to some just people on the street. None of them knew what levelling up was. Not but nobody one, in here knows. Or if they do know, it's just their own thing. Yeah, but it's like almost like their impression as a Conservative member. People on the street knew nothing. I had mm. people say, is it a video game levelling up? Um, is it going to the gym and like levelling up weights? Um, is it levelling up a, an album? And I also went round conference and spoke to um, people here. None of them knew what levelling up. And actually, a lot of them said they felt quite ignored. A lot of these people are working class people who are serving our drinks, who are cleaning oh, up after yeah. people, who are serving our food. I went to an event uh, the other day. And when I say pe they, uh, people going weren't even looking at the waitresses and the waiters, they were just holding out champagne glasses, expecting it to be refilled, and weren't even acknowledging that yeah. they're there. And, and these people are working class people from this area that they're trying to win over. So I think there is a disconnect of what actually... What does levelling up mean? And I also went to a levelling up event yesterday. And um, I said, you know, what does levelling up mean for disabled people who can't work? Because we frequently talk about that. Um, and one of the MPs came up with a story about a man with Down syndrome in America who worked at McDonald's for 30 years. And it was great. And if we can kind of get that happening in the UK, we can save taxpayers £2 million over the course of their lifetime. Now, I don't think that's going to resonate with many um, people in the public. Um, that, I don't think many people are going to think they're OK. But I think one of the things is previous governments haven't, not had the guts to tackle regional inequality. They've tried, but none of the things that they have done have managed to solve the problem. Yeah. And I think that is the difficult bit. It's, it is not that no British Prime Minister in, in the last 20 years has thought, wouldn't it be great if we could make the North East grow as quickly as the South East? Is that they've tried all sorts of things. Remember, remember Tony Blair moved huge numbers of government agencies mm. up to the North East in an attempt to, 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 to boost regional growth. And so it's not, you know, remember the John Prescott super ministry and all of these things. It's not that no one's tried to do it. It's no one's managed to succeed in doing it. And I think that is, that is the challenge for the government. It, it's, it's not that everyone thought, oh, let's not bother trying to do this. Everyone tries to do this, but they couldn't find a way to make it work. And that is the challenge for them. And, and because it's so amorphous and because everybody thinks levelling up is a different thing, and you literally, you know, a bit out sort of fox popping people, and you get diametrically opposed, you know, some think it's just, you know, equality of opportunity. Others think it's sort of direct investment and experience. Some things to do with schools, it's to do with transport, it's to do with housing, whatever it might be. But then as a result, it's going to be quite difficult for Boris Johnson to declare victory on it ahead of an election, isn't it, James? Because at least if you say we're going to hire 20,000 police officers, you can go to the next election and say, we've got 20,000 extra, but we are going to level up. It's such an amorphous thing. And I think, I think he will hope, I think, that in 2023, 2024, it's enough to, to show, to say, you know, we care. And a sense that, you know, there's more, some life coming back to these places, some more investment coming in, both, both public and, and private. But I think you are right that until you can say, here are the kind of three metrics or the five metrics on which we will assess whether the government has delivered, in inverted commas, on levelling up, it, you know, it, it, is, it is a vague idea. And uh, when we get to the end of the week or, you know, when you come in to write your, your column at the end of the week or, you know, reflecting at the weekend when you finally got back and uh, shaking it all off, what do you think this conference will be remembered for, Nadine? For me, um, not much substance and a lot of rhetoric. Um, and on a personal level, not not fully understanding um, the levels of inequality in this country. Um, I think that's what I'll be taking away from it. And as I said, I went to an event yesterday. I, in fact, I've been to three events. I asked Jacob Rees-Mogg 
what does loving up mean if you're disabled and you can't work? I asked Therese Coffey the same thing, and I asked, I can't remember the, the MP's name yesterday, I also asked an MP on a panel on levelling up. Uh, Therese Coffey and um, Jacob Rees-Mogg said, we'd like to focus on what people can do and what they can't do. Although Jacob Rees-Mogg said, when I asked him, you know, people pay into the system their whole lives, do you not think they have a, a right to kind of claim benefits if they can't work? And he said yes. Um, and then Therese Coffey also said, you know, um, we want to focus on what people can do and what they can't do. And then the panel I went to yesterday, no one answered a question on what it means if you're disabled and you can't work. So there are people who have fallen through the gaps and Rishi Sunak's speech didn't mention universal credit once. Now we know this is one of the huge issues. Even Ian Duncan Smith, the, the founder of, of universal credit, has said we need to keep the uplift permanent. The fact that there are senior Tories saying this is, you, you know, this is a huge issue and it didn't even get a look and in, it's in it's his speech. In the sense, yeah, I, yeah. I feel like there's been a lot of uh, turning blind eyes a lot of lack of understanding. Uh, so, some of the people in their party as well, like when I say I've spoken to quite a few members, a lot of them are unhappy with things. You know, a lot of them don't particularly like Boris Johnson. Um, a lot of them uh, don't agree with the universal credit cuts. So I think for me, what I'm taking away is a, a party that's a bit out of touch um, at the moment. Um, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, universal credit goes today in a month's time, how they'll be doing um, in the polls. What about you, James? I mean, the most audacious bit of this conference is... is Boris Johnson's decision to lean into the labour shortages and the supply chain disruption and say, look, you know, these are a sign of a kind of robust economy. It's because the economy is coming back to life and they're good things and that they'll lead to people being paid more. Uh, I think that decision to take ownership of that is, is is a big political gamble. Now, if he can say at the next election, look, you know, I ended free movement and British workers are now being paid more, uh, that will obviously be a plus for him. But if this problem doesn't get solved because you're trying to do this adjustment all at once, as, as one comment minister said to me this week, you know, in the three months leading up to Christmas, and you end up with big disruption, this week will make it much more difficult for the government to say, nothing to do with us, or we did everything we could to try and deal with this problem. I think that decision is, quite, is going to have a lasting impact on our politics, one way or the other. Dean Bachelor Hunt and James Forsyth. Then, of course, you can read James every Friday in The Times. Just get yourself a digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, who's up and who's down in Boris Johnson's cabinet? Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. Uh, before we take a look at the Prime Minister's speech, who else has performed well or badly in Manchester this week? We've got uh, Henry Zeffman, Chief Political Correspondent of the Times. Morning, Henry. Uh, we've got Isabel Hardman, Assistant Editor of the Spectator. Morning, Isabel. Hello. And Chris Curtis from the Polster Opinion. Morning, Chris. Good morning, Matt. Um, overall, the, uh, there is a, it feels like there's a big disconnect between Boris Johnson, King of Everything. There's quite a big gap then before you get to basically anyone in the Cabinet. Is that fair, Henry? Yeah, I think it is fair. I think in a weird way, this is kind of the conference that we, or that the Conservatives, were going to have, uh, you know, in 2020. Uh, the first one after Boris Johnson became the most electorally successful Conservative Party leader since Margaret Thatcher. Uh, and I think it has been an opportunity for a lot of Tories here to digest quite how brilliant he is at winning elections. Uh, and uh, I think that has contributed, you know, there is discontent here among pockets about vaccine passports or about this or about that or whatever things that people have been simmering over for a few months. But in practice, they've seen him here. They've been reminded how much they love him. Did you think the same as well? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think it's particularly helpful, actually, because everyone's very happy and everything's absolutely fine within this conference and then when you talk to any MPs about how their constituents might be feeling their faces fall and they go oh yeah actually things aren't that great outside so they've had a lovely week partying here in Manchester but I was talking to one last night who um, I think was sufficiently drunk to sort of say what he was actually thinking and he said it just feels like the calm before the storm doesn't it and something terrible is about to happen. Chris, you're nodding. And one of the big, whenever we have a conversation about the problems the country is facing and the issues that Boris Johnson has, the obvious repost is look at the polls. They're still ahead. 
you know, there's fuel shortages, they're still ahead. Labour has a party conference when it has loads of attention in, the, in a way it hasn't for two years. Tories are still ahead. Boris Johnson is still very popular. How solid is that, do you think? I don't think it's as solid as people here think it is. I think that it, you do get a vibe that the Conservatives are maybe a little bit more complacent than they deserve to be. Um, and you're always ahead in the polls until you're not ahead in the polls. And there's lots of lots of reasons to believe that, uh, that Conservatives are going to have a very difficult winter in a very difficult few months. And I think, basically, they've sort of decided that Labour is completely useless and incompetent and sort of lacking any coherent strategy, which may not be an unfair criticism, but they've still got a fair amount of time to get it together, actually. In a lot of ways, Keir Starmer is still more popular than the Prime Minister in a lot of polling, and that's often a point that's forgotten. And I don't think their current lead in the polls, which after all in many polls is so small, the sort of lead that would lead to a hung parliament, I don't think that's as stable as they think it is. Um, and there is always the risk as well. They think that the people here think the Labour Party is so rubbish that they can afford to essentially be a bit rubbish themselves. The Boris Johnson can make jokes about pigs because he thinks, well, the Labour Party aren't capitalising. But anyway, let's, let's work our way through uh, the Cabinet. And we're paying particular attention as well to the uh, Conservative Home. Uh, so the Conservative Home is a website uh, for uh, Conservative Party members. They do a survey every month asking uh, which members of the Cabinet they particularly like. Liz Truss is miles ahead uh, in these net satisfaction ratings uh, for the Cabinet. So well, let's start with the, the new uh, Foreign Secretary. Let's take a listen to uh, her making a speech this week. My vision is to strengthen our economic and security ties in order to build a network of liberty around the world. We will have a positive, patriotic, proactive foreign policy that expands our trade routes, strengthens our security partnerships and supports development. Isabella, a, 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 a network of liberty, a, a pragmatic, proactive policy, foreign policy in which you didn't mention Europe at all. Yes, it was funny. I mean, it reminded me a little bit of being back in year nine at girls' school where people <laughs> sort of talked about their friends while very pointedly avoiding one name just to, just to show how, how really mean they were. Um, but look, it obviously went down well in the hall. It was a pointed mission that was designed to appeal to to the members. Uh, actually, I know we're going to talk about his speech separately, but, but I thought it was notable also that Rishi Sunak talked about his very brave decision to back Brexit, which you know obviously destroyed his career thereafter. Oh, good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning. It's Matt Chorley in Manchester. What I've done here, this is a terrible error. I've got myself in a sort of group behind Rishi Sunak, who's about to walk out and have his photo. No, I'm going to, do you know what, I'm going to wait here. Yeah. Wait, Rishi, do you get fed up with doing all these selfies? No, no it's, gosh, it's great, actually. It's, You're like a rock star. It is just... Uh, You're more popular than Andy Burnham was last week. <laughs> Which means you've had to put some trousers on. Now, I thought the quality of the speeches in the hall yesterday was utterly lamentable. <laughs> <laughs> the only two people who are awake and sober in Manchester. Uh, awake. They are awake. I had to do an unthinkable thing, Matt. I had to go and find a physical Tory party press officer. Andrew is ahead. Kieran needs to pull it out of the bag here if he's going to... Gonna, uh, if he's going to chat. Oh, it's very close. It is very close. Oh, it's a photo finish. It is a photo finish. Eggs have been dropped. Eggs have been dropped all over the back of the Daily Politics. You put BBC Two on. You will. <laughs> oh, lively behind us. I can't remember. Who, who did I say won that? First of all, it's not the Daily Politics. I know. I'm sorry. I mean, you know, it's really, only been about I'm what five years. Five years. You're a slow <laughs> learner. Uh, what about Theresa May? Yeah, she kind of resembles Ted Heath in a skirt. Maybe there's a connection between getting people who are really hungover to do the quiz <laughs> it means they don't get part. The correct answer was the Rovers' return. <laughs> the don't o say that on no. the radio. <laughs> Till now, but anyway, it's nice to hear the montage again. It's much only live in Manchester. We've pulled the yogurt pots and the string nice and tight now, so hopefully, you'll be able to stick with us. I think you heard uh, the extract of uh, Liz Truss's speech, and we've been quite happily talking about it ever since uh, without realizing <laughs> that nobody else was uh, listening. Um, uh, uh, Isabel, first of all, what's your take on, on Liz Truss? Her it, it, there's a slight feeling I've picked up from people in the round conference. It's all a little bit calculated. I won't mention Europe, uh, and everyone will notice that. Isn't that very clever of me? 
Yeah, I mean, that was quite mean girls, wasn't it? The sort of, you know, year nine at all girls school, not not really you know, talking about all the people you like and omitting the one person in the class who you really hate in a very pointed way. Um, and I, I mean, I also think that in terms of the sort of public perception of her, it's not so much the cold pizza posts on Instagram. It's still the that is a disgraced cheese speech that, that everyone's obsessed with. I mean, she's got her own gift section on WhatsApp, for instance, when maybe this is just shows how weird my friends are, that when they're talking about something being bad, Liz Truss pops up in gift <laughs> form saying that is a disgrace about cheese again. Uh, Henry, what's your what's your take on her? I actually I actually think this was quite a this was a conference for Liz Truss, which actually shows that she might have some difficulties retaining her affections, uh, or retaining the affection, or the intensity of the affection of conservative activists, because foreign policy is fundamentally quite dull, uh, and uh, you know, her speech went down pretty well in the hall, but it wasn't rapturously received. It wasn't you know it wasn't a reception which made you think, wow. You know, this woman is going to be Tory leader for sure in the way that some of those Boris Johnson speeches did make you think, OK, you know, this man could be unbeatable in a leadership election. Um, I think it'll be difficult for Liz Truss to, you know, while she is being Britain's chief diplomat, to keep talking about the issues that are, are red meat for conservative activists. And I, th I think actually you've seen a bit of that this week. Chris, from a polling perspective, away from the Con Home survey, does Liz Truss have any impact on the public consciousness? I've not beyond the uh, sort of gif phenomenon <laughs> that Isabel mentioned, I don't think. No, I mean, the public can name Boris Johnson. Most of the public can name Rishi Sunak. I think beyond that, it's very, very hard for a cabinet member to be sort of a, a household name. Well, let's turn to Liz Truss and the Foreign Secretary. Let's turn our attention to her predecessor, famously, although, they, you know, they're still squabbling over who gets chevening. Dominic Raab, Deputy Prime Minister, Lord Chancellor and Law and Justice Secretary, of course, to give him his uh, full title. Uh, this was him in his speech earlier this week. But friends, there is one area where we've got to do a whole lot better. Like I know all of you, I was shocked and horrified by the harrowing murders of Sarah Everard and Sabina Nesson. These cases have quite understandably sparked a national outpouring of fear and anger because they go to the very heart of the society that we all want to live in and that we want for our children and for the next generation. So I can tell you that making our communities safer so that women can walk home at night without having to look over their shoulder, as your Justice Secretary, that is my number one priority. That's uh, Dominic Raab there talking about violence against women, although he seems to have gone to a bit of a pickle this morning. He was on BBC Breakfast and was pressed on whether misogyny should be a hate crime and said misogyny, misogyny is absolutely wrong, whether it's a man against a woman or a woman against a man. <laughs> Isabel. Spectacular definition of misogyny. <laughs> um, I think, though... It, does he think it means just, like, badness? <laughs> is badness is bad, whoever's doing it? Yeah, I, I've, I've watched the clip several times um, because I've become obsessed with it this morning. And I, a kind interpretation would be he does say the word insults and misogyny. And I wondered whether he was trying to say that. A less kind and possibly more realistic interpretation is that he doesn't know what he's saying. Um, but, so but either I heard way, one person try to explain there's a there was a comma there somewhere uh, in, in, the, in which which you couldn't <laughs> hear. Oxford which comma. Hear. Or yeah. <laughs> I think he did get quite good standing within the conference. He's part of the Law and Order push, and even though sort of popularly he's known as the guy who went on holiday while the Taliban advanced across Afghanistan, I think. The fact that he was allowed to make announcements shows that Boris Johnson rates him because lots of cabinet ministers got up on that weird stage in that weird little hall this week and said absolutely nothing, <laughs> including Michael Gove. Yeah, yeah. You know, big senior figures. Some of them didn't even get speeches. They had these weird panel discussions where they had a Q&A from the audience. And all the questions were things like, what is your favourite bit of well, your you job? Well, you had to send them in via WhatsApp, didn't you? And yeah. that was how you got selected. <laughs> yeah. So you didn't even get... Yeah, oh yeah, there was no show of hands. There was no show of like hands. People <laughs> actually asking uh, difficult questions. I tell you what, let's uh, let's move on from Dominic Raab for a moment. Uh, let's take a listen to uh, Rishi Sunak. Uh, obviously, Chancellor of the Exchequer. Quite a big moment. His first uh, in-person party conference speech. Uh, let's take a listen to him. Remember, as economies around the world pulled the shutters down, forecasters were predicting unemployment to reach 12 percent. Millions of people were on the precipice of losing their jobs, their livelihoods, their homes. Well, the forecasts were wrong. 
The unemployment rate is at less than 5% and falling. That's lower than France, America, Canada, Italy and Spain. And we now have one of the fastest recoveries of any major economy in the world. Now, it wasn't that the forecasters had bad models, no. It's just their models did not take account of one thing. And that was this conservative government, our will to act and our plan to deliver. Uh, he also uh, set out uh, the defence of tax rises. And know? whilst I know tax rises are unpopular, some will even say unconservative. I'll tell you what is unconservative. Unfunded pledges, reckless borrowing and soaring debt. Anyone who tells you that you can borrow more today and tomorrow will simply sort itself out just doesn't care about the future. So yes, I want tax cuts, but in order to do that, our public finances must be put back on a sustainable footing. Well, it's quite an audacious move, that, Henry Zeffman. Uh, Rishi Sunak making the case that tax rises are the conservative thing to do. Yeah, I mean, the whole uh, speech was sort of casting himself as uh, the man who you know, had had no option but to take the difficult choices uh, to save jobs. Um, but on tax cuts in particular, of course, I mean, that, that is the recent tax rise is something that Conservative activists are a bit concerned about. And if there's one thing we know Rishi Sunak is concerned about, uh, it's his popularity with the Conservative Party, not just MPs, but activists more generally. And as you mentioned, I mean, shouldn't lose sight, this was basically his debut on that stage. Two years ago, Rishi Sunak was Chief Secretary to the Treasury, um, and I think it's f fairly charitable to suggest that even, you know, a small handful of activists would have known who he was. Um, so, uh, you know, it was it was a big moment for him. I have to say, I thought he did very well. Um, you know, I heard a bit of the clip there. His delivery was very good. It was all very plausible. The problem for Rishi Sunak this week is that Boris Johnson is so popular. So all this sort of soft soap videos and all of that. That's not going to matter for quite a few years, I think. Although he has been, whenever I've seen Rishi Sunak walking about, he is the one that everyone wants a selfie with. There was a very awkward moment uh, one day this week when I was walking out of here. Rishi Sunak was ahead of me, being mobbed. Dominic Raab comes the other way and basically has to sort of walk around a group of people wanting selfies. As if they don't know he's the Deputy Prime Minister who was recently promoted. In, in fairness, if it were me, I would much prefer a selfie with Rishi Sunak than Dominic Raab because as a five-for-eight man, <laughs> comparatively look a little bit taller. I think that clip you showed about um, tax rises there, you talk about the Conservative Party membership and that, but that's, that quote, that, that line is exactly where the country is. And I still think with this tax rise and all of this stuff about is it left-wing, right-wing, regardless of that, it's a very, very good dividing line with the Labour Party. We've got putting more money into the NHS and social care, and we're telling you where that's coming from. The Labour Party says it's going to do that, but where is it going to come from? What magic money tree is it going to come from? And ultimately, um, whenever, you, whenever you run focus groups, whenever you talk to voters, whenever you ask people what their biggest problem with the Labour Party is, it's not the culture war stuff, it's not the woke wars that maybe many people at this conference think it is, it's that they think they're going to rack up the debt and deficit, cause more risk sessions can't run the economy completely incompetent at doing that and like that sort of stuff helps bring that message back um and and makes it very puts, puts labor in a very very difficult position and i think actually that's the strategic achievement that that tax rise achieved almost more than uh, more than anything else my fav my favorite line from uh richard Sinek's speech was when he said my point is this even if you can't see it yet i assure you the future is here <laughs> sort of which is all a bit um, uh, Keir Starmer bending the arc of history for my liking. But anyway, uh, it's all a bit time jump. Right, still to come, we're going to take a look at Priti Patel and Michael Gove as we work out who's up and who's down in the Cabinet here on Times Radio. Times Radio with Matt Chorley. Yeah, morning. It's Matt Chorley live from the Conservative Party Conference in Manchester ahead of Boris Johnson's speech, which is coming up live at 11.30, if he's on time. Uh, we'll bring you to, uh, that live. We're taking a look at some of the speeches of uh, his top team, the Cabinet, who's up and who's down. Let's turn our attention now to uh, the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, uh, who actually, I think, probably had one of the biggest announcements of the conference this week. Let's take a listen. It is abhorrent that a Serbian police officer was able to abuse his position of power authority and trust to commit such a horrific crime. The public have a right to know what systematic failures enabled his continued employment as a police officer. 
We need answers as to why this was allowed to happen. I can confirm today that there will be an inquiry to give the independent oversight needed to ensure that something like this can never happen again. That's Priti Patel uh, there. Uh, it's, but it was, the thing that struck me was that at the weekend, the government was saying they weren't going to order an inquiry. Mm. And part of me wondered, from a purely, I know it's very serious, from a purely cynical political perspective, why not announce this last week? Yeah, I, I thought the delay was very strange because it left a vacuum into which we had all that very strange advice about, you know, if women were accosted by a lone police officer, they should start waving at bus drivers, which, I mean, as someone who's had bus drivers go past them quite a lot of time when I'm actually at a bus stop, I found it slightly, <laughs> slightly bizarre. But, um, but yeah, so that was odd. But I, I do think you know, that, that aside, the way she managed to get the balance there between announcing this inquiry, saying that what had happened was, you know, disturbing and unacceptable, but also not just bashing the police because she still wants to seem on the side of the police. It was a very difficult, delicate balance. She managed to do that and then move on to the much more political sort of raw bits of her speech where she talked about protests and talked about um, sentencing and, and all those sorts of things, immigration, the asylum system. There were lots of difficult things for her to juggle. I mean, that's the very nature of a Home Secretary's job is there's always something going wrong somewhere. And for her, basically, everything is going wrong on every front. And so the sort of theme of her speech, um, well, I wrote about this yesterday and then I accidentally encountered her at a party and felt slightly shamefaced, was sort of large and in charge, um, which, I mean, she's not very large. She's quite short, actually. But, um, but it was sort of, I'm in control. I'm taking control over the immigration system. I'm going to crack down on these people who are getting in the way of, you know, ambulances on the motorway and so on. Get out of my way. I'm pretty Patel, basically. And does that play well with voters, Chris? Uh, I, I, yeah. I mean, the bit, one, what we've noticed in particular, I think, and it's, it's one area where Pretty is going to have to have a big role in coming years, is, is on the issue of, of specifically of, of crime and violent crime. And it is going up um, the public's consciousness. It's, it's increasingly one of the top three issues facing the countries and the sort of polling issues trackers that we do. And we've also seen Labour, you know, perhaps not particularly successfully so far, but try to sort of um, make themselves the party the which, best which, place. To whether it's having crime. an impact, that they have at least identified that. The, you know, the, that Nick Thomas Simmons last week, the Shadow uh, uh, Home Secretary, we literally dusted off Tony Blair's tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. But they've realised that that is, that is somewhere where, where there is political potential. Yeah, well, actually, what I think one of the difficulties for the Labour Party is that they'll never be able to come out with a better slogan on crime than tough on crime, <laughs> tough on the cause of crime, so they're just going to have to keep Really, using... really, really yeah. tougher on crime. Uh, really, but, really tough. But, but yes, ultimately, Labour realises that this is one of the ways they can sort of, again, show they're in touch with those more socially conservative voters who have moved away from them in recent years, and I think, therefore, that is a problem for the Conservative Party and one that they're going um, have to have to, have to, have to you know, make sure they keep the, the Labour Party off that lawn. Um, Henry, how's Pritchard Patel seen, because she's obviously clearly very popular with the activists, she's definitely had the biggest rounds of applause uh, sitting here, from the, you'll be able to hear from the hall the other end. How would she sort of get on with her cabinet colleagues and MPs and that sort of thing? Because there is also this criticism, she keeps announcing things, particularly about how to deal with the migrants crossing the channel. She makes more and more announcements and the numbers just keep going up. Yeah, I'm not sure she's uh, either hugely popular or unpopular with her um cabinet and MP colleagues. I mean, I think actually she's not, um, you know, despite clearly uh, having leadership ambitions in the sort of Boris Johnson, if the ball came loose from the scrum sense, um, you know, I don't think she is constantly manoeuvring. She's not one of those who's holding drinks parties um, left, right and centre. Um, I think her strength actually comes from her ideology, uh, which is that she is clearly on the right of the party, clearly a true believer uh, in a way that some of her colleagues um, are not. Uh, and that's the strength she derives, is is, is the fact that she can say these things uh, that, to a degree, any Conservative Home Secretary would say, uh, and get far, far more applause uh, and go down really well because it's so clear that, that, that that's what Pretty Patel is actually about. OK, let's take a look at the, 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 the last of the big hitters, uh, probably the longest job title of any of them. Michael Gove, Secretary of State for Leveling Up, Housing and Communities and Minister for Intergovernmental Relations. Um, I bumped into him last night and I said, basically, if you spent your entire week with people telling you what levelling up is, and he said he could probably do uh, a whole episode of just a minute on his own, just talking about levelling up without any repetition or, or deviation at all. Anyway, let's take a listen. This was uh, Michael Gove in his speech trying to define levelling up. And for the government, levelling up means four things. We want to strengthen local leadership. Great mayors like Andy Street, 
driving real change. We also want to raise living standards, especially where they're lower. We want to improve public services, especially where they're weaker. And we also want to give people the resources necessary to enhance a sense of pride in the place where they live. Mark Ago's definition of levelling up, then, does it mean anything to anyone, Chris? No, no, I asked. There's a, isn't there a song called Level Up? Yeah, there is. Level, we, we, level, level Up, Level, level Up, Level Up, Level Up. Yeah, yeah. It's very big on the TikTok. Yeah, this is, that was basically, I went around some of my colleagues in my office who don't work in, in political research the other day, and that was when I asked them what levelling up was. That was the biggest response I got back. Um, out of all of the sort of, yeah, I, I think the Conservatives have been sort of quite good at different sort of political strategies over the past few years. This is the one I'm actually, sort of levelling up agenda is the one I'm, I'm, I'm most cynical about, because I think it would be very, very difficult for the Conservatives to turn around to voters in some of those seats in a few years' time and, you know, make the argument that they've materially improved their communities and their lives. That's a very, very hard argument to do. It's usually better to find someone else to blame or say, well, at least the other guys aren't going to do a better job. And also there were 60 million different definitions of yeah. that. Yeah, well, you know, one person wants their park sorted out, somebody else wants the pothole sorted out. You know, there's so many improving the area you live in. Yeah, and people are going to, yeah, in a few years' time, people are still going to drive to the local high street and their car is going to hit a pothole and then they'll get to the local high street and there will still be shops empty. And then they'll go for a walk in the park and there'll still be too much litter in the park. And, you know, actually it's very, very hard to make the argument that you have made these kind of differences and made these kind of changes. And people notice negative things more than they notice positive things and mm. all of that other stuff about human psychology. So I just don't, I'm still not convinced um, that, that levelling up is, even if they do end up doing quite a good job at it, is a particularly good, useful political strategy for the Conservatives or the narrative that they want to be telling. Yeah, I mean, if, if Michael Gove were playing just a minute in his speech, one of the rules must also, along with repetition and so on, be don't make any announcements because he didn't actually <laughs> say anything. And, you know, if, if they want concrete <coughs> things to be happening, then they haven't got much time. And uh, Perhaps in the next couple of minutes, you know, Boris Johnson is going to announce all sorts of things that will see the cranes driving north to, to build, you know, build this new Jerusalem. Um, but I, they haven't got much time and they're not going to improve schools in two years. They're not going to you know, build lots of bridges or whatever in two years. So what are they going to do? But the whole conference has been really announcement free. Mm. I mean, you know, we're, look, we're looking at these two big banners delivering on the people's priorities and getting on with the job. But I do think <laughs> midterm. Boris Johnson's still a little bit hazy on what the job is. There's also Bill Back Better. Oh, yes, there, there is. As well. well, again. Bill. Three I mean, slogans. Three slogans, All none of which mean a huge amount. Uh, still a temp for the number Labour had over the course of their conference. So they've all packed up, cleared off, taken their hangovers and headed for the train. The Conservatives leaving Manchester after their first in-person conference for two years. But how did Boris Johnson's speech go down? Let's ask the panel. I'm joined by Patrick Maguire, Times Red Box editor, Isabel Harmon from The Spectator and Chris Curtis from The Polster uh, Opinion. Um, let's start with you, first of all, um, Isabel. And the, the sense that this felt a bit like uh, it was delayed by uh, a, a year because of the, the pandemic, but a bit of a victory lap and a bit of a, a triumphant, um, uh, belated electoral uh, victory rally. Let's take a listen to Boris Johnson talking about um, uh, building back better. After decades of drift and dither, this reforming government, this can-do government, this government that got Brexit done, that's getting the Covid vaccine rollout done, is going to get social care done. And we are going to deal with the biggest underlying issues of our economy and society. The problems that no government has had the guts to tackle before. And I mean the long-term structural weaknesses in the UK economy. Isabel Harmon, what do you make of it? I mean, I don't think it bore much re relation to reality, not just in terms of what's going on outside the conference hall, in terms of the supply chain shortages and, and so on, but also in terms of what the Conservatives are actually doing. I mean, the idea that they're actually fixing social care is just not true. They've, they've increased a tax that they're going to put largely into the NHS, which I think is going to be impossible to claw back from the NHS and which isn't improving social care at all. So, I mean, that's just one example. And then it was a, a speech that had one policy announced in it, which was this £3,000 uh, levelling up premium to encourage STEM teachers to go to unpopular areas where you know schools have, have shortages, fine, that's great, but it's not commensurate with the challenge of levelling up the, the different parts of the United Kingdom that Boris Johnson promised when he became Prime Minister. All of that said, 
Boris Johnson clearly has the confidence that none of that matters and that he can appear uh, what other people would, you know, another politician would be described as delusional, basically, that everything's going to be fine. You know, there's no shortages. Farmers aren't shooting their pigs because there's nowhere to, to slaughter them. Uh, you know, that, that actually the Tory faith will forgive him. But also I think he clearly assumes that the electorate won't end up blaming him either. It was interesting. And inevitably, I suppose, that upbeat Boris Johnson, it was a classic Boris Johnson speech. Lots of jokes. Actually, lots of him just saying things which sound like jokes, and they all laugh along, uh, but almost no content. Yeah, I mean, he did, uh, there was one point where he made a joke that I didn't think was very funny. I can't remember what it was because it was so rubbish. But they all laughed. And I just suddenly thought, well, actually, I mean, they really will laugh at anything he says, won't they? Even if he's announcing, like, a really boring policy on engineering, they'll probably think it's a joke. Uh, and so he does have so much goodwill in the party. Imagine if Theresa May were Prime Minister right now during these shortages. Imagine how you know frantic the cabinet would be. They'd be all running off the stage to say, that was terrible, that was terrible, whereas everyone's just really happy because it's Boris Johnson. He, he does have an incredible ability to, to cheer people up and to get away with things that most politicians will never, ever have. One of the standout things, I thought, was that the way that Boris Johnson once again tries to disguise the fact that the Conservatives have been in government for now 11 years. Uh, let's take a listen to uh, basically attack on, on his predecessors, Theresa May. That's the difference between this radical and optimistic conservatism and a tired old Labour. Did you see them last week? Did you watch them last week in, in, in Brighton? Hopelessly, would hopelessly divided, I thought they looked. Their leader like a seriously rattled bus conductor. <laughs> put, pushed this way and that by a... Not that they have bus conductors anymore, unfortunately, but like a, serious, a seriously rattled bus conductor pushed this, day, this, way, this way and that by a Corbynista mob of sellotape-spectacled sans-culottes. <laughs> or, the, or the skipper of a cruise liner that's been captured by Somali pirates, desperately trying to negotiate a change of course and then changing his mind. Uh, that, in fact, of course, was an attack on the Labour Party rather than on his predecessors. We'll come to his predecessors in a moment. What did you make of Patrick Maguire? What did you make of the attacks on the Labour Party? Lots of Captain Hindsight again. It's basically still sticking to the same attacks he's used before. Yeah, there were, there were two main veins of criticism of the Labour Party. The first um, and... Uh, less significant, I would say, are the brief attacks on policy. For instance, you're saying a bit we're up to Keir Starmer, we still be in lockdown, um, cast them as opponents as levelling up. But the second, and far more, far more prevalent and prominent, was you know what you might say, this was sort of government by telegraph column, right? He, as ever, as he's done for the best part of three decades, cast himself as the opponent of... Um, nannying lefties you know there was the very telling reference to Labour want children to run races in which there are no which there are no winners which is uh, you know he mentioned Thatcher early in the speech is the, is the sort of criticism people on the right used to make of the Ken Livingston's Greater London Council and I think that that sort of that criticism of the left is, is, is sort of very significant right because he cast himself as a doer an optimist someone who's delivering while, you know, as he said, Labour is divided, uh, turning in on itself, arguing. But also, um, and this is something people around Keir Starmer are very alive to, that Labour are, you know, losers who are more interested in um, criticising the behaviour of the British people than getting behind it. And Boris Johnson is occupying a huge swathe of um, a political ground here. On the one hand, he's saying more cash for the NHS, uh, on the other, uh, and raising the minimum wage. On the other, he's talking about controlling immigration. And it's really difficult for Labour to find, to carve out the political space to oppose that vision, Espe especially if, you know, as the Tory uh, ministers this week have been talking constantly about what Keir Starmer said last week about 100,000 visas for lorry drivers. If Labour aren't careful, they're going to end up in a space in 2024 where it's essentially um, a rerun of the Brexit referendum in 2016 where you have Boris Johnson talking about um, high wages, low immigration and Labour are cast as um, at once a party of uh, nannying losers and also, uh, you know, re uh, redux remainers. And it's really tricky, but as Isabel was saying before, where Labour can, can hit back on that is delivery, right? It's quite risky for Boris Johnson to cast himself as the man who is solving all of these incredibly knotty policy issues that successive governments have put in the sort of too difficult box. And Boris Johnson's gamble is that in at least 
speaking about them with gumption and brio, the public will appreciate that if they don't, uh, even if solutions are not immediately forthcoming. But that's the political risk. Uh, let's turn our attention to what he, he said about his predecessors. He said, I'm pleased to say that after years of stagnation, more than a decade, just happens to be the length of time uh, the Conservatives have been in power, wages are going up. He later said, we are dealing with the biggest underlying issues of our economy and society, the problems that no government has had the guts to tackle before. It's quite unusual for a Prime Minister to attack their own party's record in government in this way, albeit not explicitly, Chris Curtis. Yeah, and there's a very important strategic reason why he's doing that in 2023, 2024, whenever the next election comes around. The Conservatives will have been in power for well over a decade. The Conservatives will have fought and, to a more or lesser extent, won for... Uh, general elections be going for a, a fifth and it's very very hard thing to do that to sort of reinvent yourself and sort of put out a new vision for the country when you've been in government for so long and, and that's why he's trying to distance himself from his predecessors that's why he's trying to make it out like he is a this is a new government different from Theresa May from David Cameron's but actually the more interesting thing I thought was not just that he was doing that which is obvious and is an important part of what he needs to do but he was doing that in front of a crowd of people who went out and door knocked for them who went out and campaigned in the rain and in the, the cold and then parts of the country in the snow in this, uh, you know, uh, different, different, for 2017-2015 elections for these prime ministers that he's now going out and trashing. And when he said it, they all cheered and clapped. But not only that, several of them sat in the cabinets of those yes. governments. They didn't have the guts to tackle these issues. Yeah, no, exactly. It's, 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 um, it's amazing, and yet he seems to be just doing it so incredibly successfully. It's, it's a reminder of this party's like protein capacity for reinvention. Mm. And the key thing, the key difference, last week we were talking about um, Labour members and trade unions and rule changes. Um, this is a, this, you know, we're sitting in what is a, a business networking event with uh, some speeches by cabinet ministers. Mm. You know, it's a reminder that actually, at the end of the day, Boris Johnson doesn't have to listen to um, CLP secretaries and all that nonsense. Do, do you remember after the 2019 election talking to a lot of senior Conservatives who said that they felt as though they were able to pitch themselves as a party that was coming into power afresh rather than, you know, as we've just said, one that had been in, party for, uh, in power for nearly a decade at that point. And there was this real optimism that, that people are just going to see it as this, this new Boris Johnson party. And then COVID happened and they forgot all about that. And it's as though they've been really sort of in terms of campaigning in suspended animation. And they're just going straight back to this, we're the new Tories, a bit like we're New Labour. But I have to say, New Labour had policies that they talked about when they re branded themselves whereas a rebrand that involves just one policy that's three thousand pound premium i know i keep going on about it but it's not it's not really a you know a big wow this is what the conservatives now stand for you know this this leveling up premium now i understand their new brand and looking ahead then we've got a couple of weeks we've got the uh spending review and the budget which is actually probably going to be a much more significant event in terms of news generation and public interest, or certainly the impact on the public. Less karaoke, though. <laughs> Less karaoke, all being well. Um, uh, what are the risks, do you think, in the, in the net? But let's say between now and Christmas, Chris Curtis, in my opinion. What, what, what are the potential risks for Boris Johnson, do you think? Well, there was surprisingly little in that speech about cost of living and the difficulties that people are facing. And, you know, it was a very, very good after-dinner speech. It was very positive and optimistic, like Isabel was saying. But I think the big risk for them is that that speech just looks so different from the reality that most people are going to be facing. You know, people woke up today on Universal Credit significantly poorer. Um, they're going to be taking home less. Yeah, they're going to have less money in their bank accounts next week than they had last week. And the prime minister took to a stage and gave this. Isn't everything great? We're building back better, optimistic for the future. They're not necessarily going to be feeling that. Um, so I think that's the big threat for them. And I suppose the big thing to watch out for, as we, we saw on the front page of the Times this morning, is what's going to happen on the minimum wage. So much has been talking about wages and wages going up and a high-wage economy, I can't see any way that strategy does not end in a significant uplift um, in the minimum wage coming in in, in in the coming months. Isabel, the risks in the next few months of the government? Yeah. I mean, and how do Labour capitalise on that? Because, I mean, the other, the other thing is we've had all this crisis and even having the, me, the political media's attention on Labour last week, they failed to capitalise yeah, on it. They were so flat-footed that I, I think they should have cancelled their conference or at least rewritten their entire conference just to be about the fuel crisis and cost of living rather than sort of sticking rigidly onto the train tracks that they planned months before. So Labour aren't going to really capitalise on this. I suspect that Keir Starmer will, will keep doing what he's done uh, for ages and two weeks after after something has become a problem, start calling for it to be solved, which just makes him appear, you know, 
as out of touch in a different way as the Tories could be. Uh, but I think it is going to be really difficult this winter. And I don't think that, uh, I mean, Boris Johnson came on and uh, quite early on said it's all OK now. Now, he was talking about COVID, which isn't going to be OK this winter. Actually, that's one problem. Uh, but the supply chain shortages are also not going to be OK. Uh, people had a rubbish Christmas last year. They're quite looking forward to a good Christmas this year. They're going to be quite upset if they can't fill their car up or they can't, you know, well, maybe they should buy something that's nicer than turkey anyway. But if they can't get their, <laughs> their prized Christmas meat this, this Christmas, then people are going to be upset. And uh, at some point, possibly, Boris Johnson may start to get the blame. Possibly. Patrick McGuire? I think Chris is absolutely right to raise the universal credit uplift because I think it plays into the levelling up thing in a big way. It's really interesting to hear you know, in the Boris pastoral bit of the speech, Boris Johnson uh, quoting that Thomas Gray poem about uh, Stoke Poges um, two words that then lost all meaning as he bludgeoned the audience by saying them again and again and again. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting, right? He's talking about levelling up and um, making a very uh, powerful argument that your, the circumstances of your birth shouldn't uh, constrain your life opportunities on a day where he, the Treasury, uh, at the best of the Treasury, um, you know, classic Treasury orthodoxy, are pushing through a welfare cut that is going to hit disproportionately people in the regions Boris Johnson is pledging to level up. Now, we'll look at the spending review. Michael Gove's entire brief and the entire, uh, you know, the, the whole levelling up thing is going to be completely meaningless without a substantial injection of cash into that department. And given what we know about Rishi Sunak, given what we heard him talking about, the immorality of um, funding government, uh, government, uh, government's fiscal policy through borrowing, that's a, that's gonna, it's going to be really interesting to see if they can square the circle of what Rishi Sunak thinks the government's fiscal policy should look like and Boris Johnson's rhetoric are levelling up. But say they do, that's also political risk for Labour. Michael Gove, speech the other day, talking all about only creating new mayors, but devolving more power to existing mayors. At that point, the most compelling figures in the Labour Party, i.e. its regional mayors, will be in a position where they have even more power. Your Andy Burnham's, your Sadiq Khan's will look like even more substantial figures than Keir Starmer. And imagine the optics of that, you know, um, there's that famous cartoon, isn't there, of Star I'm not for a moment comparing Andy Burnham and, um, and Boris Johnson to Stalin and Hitler. But you know where, you know, they're... they're um, they're shaking hands, you know, the scum of the earth, I believe, uh, and the bloody assassin of the workers, I presume. The optics of uh, Keir St um, of Andy Burnham and Sadiq Khan and Boris Johnson and Michael Gove announcing a new devolution deal, Keir Starmer totally frozen out. It's sort of, you know, the reconfiguration of British politics along regional lines, rather than, and with Keir Starmer in the middle looking sort of powerless and, and impotent. It'll be really, really, really interesting if Michael Gove is given money and a brief to properly devolve power the Labour Party in Westminster will look increasingly irrelevant. Well, the Labour Party have responded to the speech of the last few minutes, saying build back better is an empty promise. Here's why six million families face a cut to universal credit, national insurance up, energy prices up, supermarket shelves empty. The Tories are not delivering for Britain. Uh, that from the Labour Party. The SNP saying uh, Boris Johnson's shameless attempt to shift the blame onto anyone but himself will do nothing to fix the crisis he's caused with his disastrous hard Brexit and Tory uh, cruel Tory cuts. Uh, so that's some of the political reaction to Boris Johnson's uh, speech. Uh, one last thing, uh, that I, that just so we can hear it and then never, uh, ever hear it again. Uh, one of the most alarming bits, I think, was when he turned his attention to wildlife. We're planting tens of millions of trees. Otters are returning to rivers from which they've been absent for decades. Beavers that have not been seen on some rivers since Tudor times. Massacred for their pelts and now back. And if that isn't conservatism, my friends, I don't know what is. Build back beaver, I say. Chris Curtis has got his head in his hands at the prospect of build back beaver. How do beavers poll, Chris? Are they a popular animal? I, 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 <laughs> what? We'll have to, we'll have, we'll, to, run we'll have to run that in the, in the coming days. Yeah, I mean, yes. You should, you should. You should. We'll come uh, up with ten animals and we'll find out who's the most popular. <laughs> That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We're bringing the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from? <laughs>